Open your Bibles, please, to John chapter 20. I bought the car that I have now, and it had about 20,000 miles on it. Uh, it's the newest car that I've ever owned, and I, I expected uh, not to have to do any maintenance too much or any, uh, you know, repairs and so on, and, and uh, still had a guarantee left up to 36,000 miles, and so I dutifully uh, took it and got the oil changed, and uh, I think I got a coupon from the Dodge dealer. I didn't buy it from them, but I took it to them and got the oil changed and so on. And, and they got my email address and all that when it got up to you know 30,000 miles. They're going, you need to do the 30,000-mile service. And uh, I went in and had the oil changed. They go, you, you need to do the 30,000-mile service. I said, well, what is that? And they had this whole laundry list of stuff. And I said, what's that going to cost? And they said... Well, it's going to cost about so many hundred dollars. And I, I, I thought, Lord, have mercy. This car runs good. It's fairly new. And you're telling me I've got to do all this, including one of the things was changing the spark plugs. And I, rem- I have several mechanic friends who I consider to be extremely uh, sharp mechanics. And, and several times they've said, look, you don't need to change the spark plugs till you know, quite a few thousand miles and so on. So I called up one of my smart mechanic friends. And I said, hey, they're telling me that I need to change the spark plugs. The manual says you don't need to change it at all. Uh, and, uh, and he says, well, what that means is you shouldn't change the spark plugs. <laughs> and, and I said, well, why is it so expensive? And he said, well, each one of those spark plugs has a coil on top of it. It's part of the whole you know, sort of semi-high performance thing. And he says, on, he looked it up in the book, it's two and a half hours book time for a professional mechanic to change your spark plugs. I said, oh, Lord, have mercy, you know. He said, yeah, you, you better do it, you know, and so on. Cars have gotten so complex that when they break down, looking under the hood is just a formality to make you look manly. Now, right? I mean, you know, unless unless there's a cable up there going like that, you think, well, that's not there, you know, whatever. <laughs> Becoming a believer in Christ can seem kind of complex, especially if you aren't one. And for those of us that are believers, sometimes we look at our friends and neighbors and say, "How in the world? How do I get them from here to here? How how can I help them become a believer?" I want to look at one of the notable and important characters in the scripture, the Apostle John, as we've come to John 20, and follow some of the things that I believe led him to the point we'll read about here in John 20 today as he became a believer. Follow, please, as I read John 20, verses 1 through 9. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb early while it was still dark, and she saw that the stone had been taken from the tomb. Then she ran and came to Simon Peter to the other disciple and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved. If you don't know, that's how the apostle John always refers to himself in this book because he's too he wants to be humble and doesn't want to name himself all the time. And so he writes about himself sort of in the third person with a description. So Peter and John came and they the, the ladies came to them and said, "They have taken away the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him." 
Peter therefore went out and the other disciple and John and they were going to the tomb. So they both ran together and the other disciple, John, outran Peter and came to the tomb first. And he, stooping down and looking in, saw the linen cloths lying there, yet he didn't go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and he went right into the tomb. And he saw the linen cloths lying there, and the handkerchief that had been around his head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded together in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, John, who came to the tomb first, went in also, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not know the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. I want to think about John and his path to faith today, and... uh, And I want you to understand that this was not a one-time shot. John came to the tomb, looked in, and said, Oh, I believe. This was the the culmination of a three-year process for him. And the first thing that we would understand about becoming a believer and about the life of John is this. If you're going to become a believer, you need to live with Jesus. Now, some of you are saying, Well, that's not possible today. Well, you hang in there. I'm going to tell you how it's possible. But John had the opportunity to live with Jesus. Here's the beginning of John's life with Christ. Now after John, that's John the Baptist, a different John, was put into prison, Jesus came to Galilee preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. This was the message that essentially the Jewish people of that day would have been anticipating if they knew their Old Testament. They were anticipating a Messiah, a deliverer who would come and say, hey, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe. And as Jesus walked by the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. Then Jesus said to them, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. They immediately left their nets and followed him. When he had gone a little farther from there, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who also were in the boat mending their nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and went after him. And they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and taught. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. I don't know if us people in 2010 really appreciate what went on here. Somehow I think we've gotten a mental image of the, the men who became the apostles as though they were sitting around twiddling their thumbs, so to speak, waiting for the Messiah. Now they were aware that a Messiah, a deliverer, a savior was coming for Israel. They were aware of it if they were, if they were good Jews at all because they would go to the synagogue, they would hear the scripture read, there would be the talk by the rabbis, and they would have been aware of it. But they're fishing. They're at work. Can you imagine, can you imagine Jesus walking out to the refinery and going, hey, come follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. And you're going, dude, I gotta finish my shift. You know, I'm, do, you, do you understand? It says they said, see you, Dad. And they followed Jesus. Now, were they believers in Christ at that point? I would submit to you they were not. They were seekers. They were inquirers. They were interested. They were fascinated. And then when they heard him teach, I think this doesn't apply just to the 
the other people who would have been in the synagogue. But John, they, they listened to him teach and they went, wow, this guy is different than we've ever heard anybody talk at all. And so John begins his, his journey with Christ. Did he become a believer with his first encounter? No. But John spent the better part of three years following Christ around and watching him in all kinds of situations. He was there when Jesus' mother asked Jesus to take care of the wine shortage at a wedding. That would have been shortly after this, when they went to the wedding, and, and Jesus' mother comes out and says, hey, there's a problem here, and John's standing there watching, you know. He doesn't know what's going to happen. He doesn't, doesn't have a clue. And all of a sudden, there's this miracle, and Jesus goes, or John goes, whoa. I mean, really, how would you have responded? He wasn't any different than you. He really wasn't. He was there when Jesus healed people. How do you suppose that would have been the first time that happened? They're walking along, and uh, you know he, he would have also been their Sermon on the Mount, Matthew five, six, and seven. Blessed are, blessed are, blessed are. You know, don't worry about your life. God will take care of you. All of those wonderful things. Great, great, great. And then he walks along, and here's a guy who says, hey, "Buddy, you're, you're lame. Would you like to be well?" Yeah. Boom. Can you put yourself in that place going, dude, what just happened? I mean, that would have been an amazing, an amazing uh, life. Uh, so John was there. John was there when Jesus was tired and hungry and frustrated. John was there when John and James were arguing about who was the greatest in the kingdom. No, I'm the greatest. No, I'm the greatest. No, I think I am. Well, did you see that miracle I did the other day? And to hear Jesus come to them and go, guys, you're missing the point. John was there. Now, I know that we can't live physically with Jesus today. But you can hang out with people who are literally called little Christs. You know, that's what the word Christian means, don't you? It means a knockoff of the original, of a Christian. You can come here and watch us. You can watch us in the community. And I guarantee you, we will not demonstrate the life of Christ perfectly. But we will show you some examples of admitting our faults, apologizing, and repairing relationships. We will show you deliverance from life-destroying habits. We will show you joy in the midst of life-dominating illness. We will show you peace even when a loved one goes to war. We will show you hope when the life of a newborn is uncertain. We will show you faithfulness after 40 or 50 or more years of marriage. We will show you purpose even when our physical bodies limit our activities through chronic illness or deterioration of old age. I know for a fact that I don't give a perfect example. And I haven't seen one yet. I've seen some that come closer. <laughs> but I also know that I've seen some tremendous examples of things that only Christ can do in a life. And if you're a person who's never come to faith in Christ, you should hang around with us. 
And if you know people who are not believers in Christ, you should encourage them to hang around with us. It's not coming to church. It's not attendance that gets people saved. It's seeing what Christ is like. And Christian, if you want to help people become believers, that is the starting point. You must say, my primary ministry is to be Christ to people around me. Sanctify, set apart, be righteous in regard to having the Lord God in your hearts and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and in fear. And the word defense really just means to give an answer. If not in you, I wonder where will they ever see the one who really cares? If not from you, how will they find? There's one who heals the broken heart and gives sight to the blind. Because you're the only Jesus some will ever see. And you're the only words of life some will ever read. So let them see in you the one in whom is all they'll ever need. Because you're the only Jesus some will ever see. Christian, that is our job. This might surprise you, but my days aren't always slick and easy. Even when I'm working at the church with church folk. Isn't that surprising? Isn't that a shock? I don't have a chronic physical ailment of any significance, but I have a sound system I'm trying to make work. And man, it tests my sanctification. Hmm. Man. But you know why I have to work at being righteous? Because it is my job for the Lord. Your family members may or may not deserve to be treated well. They may treat you poorly. It doesn't matter. God has called you to act righteously, to give an example to those who need to become believers. If you want to become a believer, live with his people. If you want to help someone become a believer, live like Christ. Number two, you've got to listen to his teaching. You have to listen to his teaching. One of the most popular passages in the Bible is the Sermon on the Mount, as I mentioned earlier, that John would have heard, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. And that, that passage is popular because it says some things like, love your enemies. It says, don't worry about your life. God will take care of you. It says, take the piece of lumber out of your own eye before you take the splinter out of your brother's eye and more. John was there when Jesus said that. John was also there when Jesus said this. And you say, how do I know John was there when Jesus said this? Because John records it like a reporter and he's the only one who does. Jesus answered and said to him, most assuredly, he's talking to Nicodemus, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Do you think Nicodemus is the only one who was going, what in the world are you talking about? If Nicodemus, who was maybe the top teacher of the Bible in all of Israel, 
couldn't figure it out. What do you think John was thinking? John's a fisherman. He wasn't the guy who spent his time studying every day. You have to be born again. And Jesus goes on later in the passage. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Now John is going, oh, I remember that story from the Old Testament. I remember how the people of Israel complained against God and, and there were, they were always unhappy. And so God said, I am going to send you a gift to help you understand. And he sent fiery snakes. It could be that the bite of the snake felt like fire. And people were dying from it. And God said, Moses, you, put, you make a brass snake and put it on a pole and you lift it up. And when the people look at that pole, I will, I will relieve the illness that's come on them. John would have known that story because he was raised as a Jewish man. So he's, he knows that. And he goes, but you're going to be lifted up on a pole too? So that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. One of the worst reputations Christians get, and sometimes they deserve it, is that we think we're better than other people. You're, you're a lousy sinner going to hell. And, you know, we're the people of God. Jesus did not come like that. He came saying, you folks have a problem, and it's called sin. You've disobeyed God, and, and you have sin in your life, and you're not going to go to heaven, and you're not going to be able to conquer the difficulties in your life, which are sins, unless I come in and forgive them. And the only way I can forgive sin is if somebody pays for it. Somebody has to pay. A wrong has been done. Our sense of justice as humans is part of the image of God given to us in which God says sin has to be paid for. We look around when a crime is done and we say, that's not right. Somebody has to pay for that. And we get that from God. God looks at sin and he says, that's not right. Somebody has to pay. And so he sent Christ to pay and what he asks from us is to believe in Christ. And if we will believe that he was the son of God who died to pay for our sins, then God will forgive our sins because of what he did. He paid the price. John would have heard that teaching. And he would have heard Jesus expound on it as the weeks and months and years went by. And then toward the end of Jesus' ministry, John would have heard this. Jesus says, behold, we're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man, that's how he referred to himself most of the time, the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests, to the scribes, and they will condemn him to death. And they will deliver him to the Gentiles to mock and to scourge and to crucify, and the third day he will rise again. Do you want to be a believer in Christ? Are you struggling to become a believer in Christ? Let me tell you what the absolute key is. The absolute key is for you to read the Bible. Really? Yeah. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. You cannot have a discussion about God or you or God's truth if you don't know God's truth. You cannot believe or even reject intelligently if you haven't been in the book 
A lot of people want to talk about doctrine or theology or beliefs or life without picking up the book. Do you know why it's so, so important to read the Bible? It's so important because that's what changes lives. The Apostle Paul put it this way in terms of his own ministry. Now, we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, so that we might know, know the truth, the things that have been freely given to us by God. And we speak these things not in words which man's wisdom teaches, but we speak that which the Holy Spirit teaches, comparing spiritual with spiritual. He says, we preach the Bible and we show people how this truth from the Old Testament goes together with this truth from the New. We compare spiritual with spiritual. And the reason he did it is because of this. The Word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of a soul and spirit and of joints and marrow and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. The reason people get upset when you speak God's truth is because God's truth is powerful and it pokes them. It pokes them because God takes it and pokes them with it and they don't like that. There's an old preacher from years ago. People used to say, Harvey, how many, how many points do your sermons have? And he says, wherever it pokes you, that's a point. God's word pokes people. When we stand up in the world and say, every act of conception results in a human life, and if you stop that life, you're, you're taking a human life. You're murdering somebody. When we say that, God takes that truth and he pokes people. And they go, I don't like that. Because you know what? I'm, I'm going to tell you something you didn't know. I don't like to be wrong. And neither does anybody in the world. They don't like to be wrong. And when God's word pokes them and says, you're wrong, they go, I don't like that. In fact, I don't like you. And I don't like the church you came from. And I don't like the suit you're wearing. And I don't like the car you're driving. In fact, you're just a jerk. Now, isn't that what happens? It happens in much more eloquent terms. Okay. And when, when I stand up and say, Jesus Christ himself personally said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father in any other way except by me. That singular truth is what sets Christians apart for hatred by the world because it tells them if they aren't believing in Christ, they're wrong. Now, the good news about God's truth is it not only points out what's wrong, but if you will let it, it will change your life. Yeah, you're at odds with God. There's no doubt about that. But you can be together with God through his word. You want to be a believer? Spend time in God's word. If you're having a hard time understanding it, you find some mature Christian who will teach it to you. Live with Jesus. Listen to his teaching. Number three, look hard at the resurrection. Look hard at the resurrection. Look with me in John 20 again, please. And we want to look for the little word, see. John 20, starting in verse 5. And John, he's talking about himself. He stooped down and looking in, he saw... 
the linen cloths lying there, yet he did not go in. There are three different words used for vision in this passage. Unfortunately, they're all translated by the English word see or saw, depending on the tense. Um, But the first one in verse 5 is something like to take a glance. This morning, the brights were here with Claudia's brother, Josh. Dude, I pulled that way way out of the back recesses of my mind. And I saw the brights, and I recognized them, and I just assumed this, the person standing next to them was one of our people greeting them. And so I, hey, how you doing? Hey, how you doing? And he goes, hello. <laughs> oh, dude, sorry. Now, the reason for that is because I didn't look them over. I just took a snapshot and went. Okay? 80% of the time that works. <laughs> That's what John did. He went, dude, it's empty. That's, what, that, that's, that's really probably a, a good paraphrase of it. Now look at verse 6. Then Simon Peter came, following him. He went into the tomb, and he saw the linen cloths lying there. The word for saw or for vision here is more like he contemplated. He didn't just go, well, dude, it's empty, and then walk away. He, he looked at it. He thought about it. Then look at verse 8. Then the other disciple, John, who came to the tomb first, he went in also, and he saw and believed. You know, what's interesting here. If you read the other account of, one of the other accounts of this, it does not say Peter believed at that moment. It says he was astonished. But here we find that John became a believer. The word for saw in verse 8 has a a likeness to our English word perception. He went in and looked in the tomb and he looked it over. He contemplated and he went, Jesus is risen from the dead. And he believed. Now, how, how did, what was there about the empty tomb? He didn't see Jesus, he saw the empty tomb. One author put it this way, and I think he gets it right on the head. There was nothing in the mere fact of an empty tomb to compel belief in a miraculous resurrection. But when John saw on the floor of the tomb the long linen wrappings that had been so tightly wound about the body and head, lying there undisturbed in their original convolutions, he knew that nothing but a miracle could have made it possible. The body was gone from the tomb, the clothes were left behind, and the condition of them indicated that Christ had passed out of them without their being unwrapped. Do you remember when Lazarus came out of the tomb? Jesus said, unloose him. Jesus didn't come up like that. John went in there and looked and he said, he was here, and boom, he's gone. Yeah. Now, I know that you can't go look at that. There are two places, one where the Catholics say Jesus was buried, one where the Protestants say Jesus was buried. Key is they're both empty. And there's another key. 
And it's told to us at the end of the Gospel of Matthew in which those who hated Jesus sent Roman guards to guard the tomb because they remembered that he said, I'm going to be there three days and then I'm going to go. And they said, you know, if his followers steal the body, that would be a worse, uh, that would be a worse fraud than what he's already been perpetuating. So they sent soldiers and they put the signet ring of the, of the Roman governor and to break that was to lose your life. And so they sealed it. They did everything they could to keep him in the ground. And there are two places that are empty today. Folks, people hated Jesus so much that if he was still in the ground, there would still be a guy standing there going, tomb of Jesus, pay the admission here. He'd still be pointing to it because they still hate him. Look hard at the resurrection. Jesus said, this is the prime miracle that will prove who I am. He said, I, have, I, I can forgive sins. I can empower your life. I can take you to heaven with me someday. And if you look hard at the resurrection, you realize it had to have happened because without it, the world would not have changed as it has for 2,000 years. I have a book this thick that chronicles all of the things that Christians have done in the world in 2,000 years. Did you know Christians invented public education, hospitals, among other things? Because Christians had the love of Christ to say these poor urchins need a better life and these poor sick people need some help. The impact of Christ demonstrates the reality. He said, I can forgive sins and change lives. And that's what we see. And if we had time today, I could... I could parade some people up here and say, tell them about the change in your life. And, and I would say, tell me when it came. It came when they got the truth and they believed the truth and God changed them from the inside. If you want to become a believer, look hard at the resurrection. Christian, are you ready to speak about the resurrection of Christ? Are you ready to talk about it like I have or like others have so that you can share it with people? You can't prove it. I can't prove it. I can demonstrate the impact. I can demonstrate the reasonableness of the empty tomb. But I can't prove it in a scientific knock on wood, look at it fact. But can you even share the truth? Because if you can't, people will not come to faith in Christ. The resurrection of Christ is a key element in the gospel. And we need to understand that. Look hard at the resurrection. Number four, let the Holy Spirit speak to you about Christ. Becoming a believer in Christ begins with your awareness of the possibility of a different kind of life, and that comes by watching believers. It's real easy to fall into the trap of living your life and reading the newspaper and reading the tabloids and listening to the common wisdom and looking at yourself going, well, I guess it's about best I can do. And then someday I'll die and something will happen. And, and, and that's the way a lot of people live. And of course, what keeps them really going from day to day is the new thrill. New relationship, new toy, new position in the organization. And it, they get a little bit of joy from that, kind of keep going. But really, they're really looking around saying, is there something better than this? And what we should be showing them is there's something better. When we have a life-threatening illness, 
We should be showing the other people with life-threatening illness, there's something better. Oh, I might die from this, but that's okay because God is working here and he's going to work there. We should be showing them something better. When we have little kids and we're trying to train them up and they're kind of unruly and we have to work with them, but we get them trained, we should be showing people, hey, hey, there's something better here. I, I, I know kids are a challenge, but you know, God can help. And when we see that, and as an, if you're not a believer yet and you see that, you go, you know, there is something better available. And then you hear and you read God's truth and you begin to understand God's perspective and then something miraculous happens. And I say miraculous with absolute uh, certainty because it does not come from me and it does not come from your Christian friends. Something miraculous happens and that is in your soul, something says, this is true. And in your soul, something goes, you need to do something about this. And what I'm trying to tell you today with this little point right here is this. When that happens, don't fight it. In fact, until that happens, probably shoot myself in the foot here, until that happens, you just keep spending time in the Word. You just keep hanging out with your Christian friends. You just keep getting truth squared away. But when that happens, don't fight it. Jesus said, when I depart or if I depart, I will send him, the Holy Spirit, to you. And when he has come, he will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. When the Holy Spirit comes, he, he, he pokes us. He's the one who takes the word and goes, that's wrong. And he's also the one, when it says convicts of righteousness, he takes the word and goes, that's right. There is a heaven and there is a hell. And you can go to this one and avoid that one. And there is a better way in life. It's the Holy Spirit who says, this is true. And he convicts of sin because they do not believe in me. And of righteousness because I go to my Father and you see me no more. And of judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. Now when this happens, when the Holy Spirit convicts you, you can listen and obey or you can harden your heart and seek ways to fight the truth. This is what God's talking about in Romans chapter 1. He said there are many people in the world who fight the truth. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth. They work to keep the truth down because of the unrighteousness that they love. Because what may be known of God is manifest in him, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even as eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. He says, when you look at this world, any honest person looks out there and goes, this didn't happen by chance. But right at that moment, something happens. You either fight that little glimmer of truth or you embrace it. And when you come in here to this body of believers and when we stand and say God can help you with your life and God can give you a hope for heaven in the future, you either embrace it or suppress it. And what I'm challenging you to do today is let the Holy Spirit speak. Let him bring it on. Say, God, bring it on. Make it true in my heart. Because although they knew God, 
They did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but they became futile in their thoughts and their foolish hearts were darkened. Do you understand that people come to a certain knowledge of God, maybe not a complete knowledge or a full knowledge, and they get a little glimmer of God and they go, oh, dude. I had a 15-year-old kid in my youth group. I knew him from about eighth grade till probably graduation when I was a youth pastor. He got saved when he was 15. And I heard this through the grapevine from somebody else who go, yeah, so-and-so believed in Christ. I said, oh, really? So I went and talked to him. I said, hey, dude, what happened? Because he was raised every Sunday right there in church. So for 15 years, he suppressed. And I said, can I ask you why it took so long? He said, I knew there were some things that are going to have to change in my life. And he didn't want to change. He didn't want to let go. And so he suppressed. He pushed back. As God pulled in, he pushed back. Don't do that, friend. Don't do that. As you know the truth, as you hear the truth, as the Holy Spirit makes it true in your heart, say, okay, let yourself be open to God. Friend, this is the battleground for your soul. Who will win, the Holy Spirit or the spirit of this world working through the people of this world? Christian, this is the point at which it is your job to pray most fervently. That people would receive the truth and not reject the truth because truly only the Holy Spirit does that. We have to be people of prayer in that moment. Number five, love Christ more than anyone or anything. When you get to this point of being around God's people, you've heard God's truth, the Holy Spirit has been speaking to you, and you come to this point on the path in your journey with Christ, there are two hurdles that you're going to have to get over. And the first one is this. What will people think? They might say, dude, you're not going to become a, a fanatic, are you? When I was in high school, I wasn't a, uh, I certainly, I certainly did not talk about the Lord as I do now. Let's just put it that way. And uh, at graduation, they announced what people are going to do. And I don't remember if it was because of the graduation announcement or because of some other common knowledge, but I was headed to go to Western Baptist Bible College. Again, not because of my deep spirituality, but because my parents wanted me to go there. Kind of Christian reform school, you know. And because I thought, hey, it'll at least be like going to Camp Gilead, you know. There'll be a lot of people there. We'll have a lot of fun, and sure enough. And uh, so people around me at school knew that I was going to go to Western Baptist Bible College. And there was this guy in the band with me who probably was kind of a burnout a little bit. And he says, and I played the tuba in the band. And he says, are you going to, like, play the tuba in a monastery? <laughs> and I thought, oh, jeez. That's it. That's my career path right there. At that point in my life, I didn't even want to talk about the Lord really much. If you're going to be a believer in Christ, that's a hurdle you're going to have to get past. 
Jesus talked about it here. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. You have to come to a point where you say, I don't care what anybody thinks. I know this is true. I know God is calling me to believe, and I'm going to believe, and I don't care what people think. That's a hard spot. But again, it's a miraculous spot because it's God that gives you the strength to do that. You need to say, okay, I know it's going to be tough, but I'm going to go. Christian, you have an opportunity to model this kind of love and how it actually enables all the other loves rather than taking anything away from them. See, many people look at this and we go, are you telling me I need to love Jesus more than my mama? Yes, that's exactly what I'm saying. But us Christians have a chance to model how that putting Christ first makes our love for our mama better than it would be without him. And the same for a wife or a child or whoever else. We have a chance to model it. If you're going to follow Jesus, you will have to put him first and everyone else second, including yourself. And he who does not take up his own cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. This is the most challenging part about believing in Christ. You have to admit you're a sinner. You have to admit that only Jesus can save you. You have to welcome him and the changes he brings into your life. This is the biggest hurdle of all. Saying no to self and yes to God. Look back with me at John 20, verse 9, please. It's actually, let's start in verse 8. The other disciple who came to the tomb first went in, he saw and believed, for as yet they did not know the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. The word know there is better translated understand. See, John went through a three-year process. Here he is fishing, fishing, and Jesus says, follow me. And he goes, got to be better than fishing. And he walks through three years and he hears all this truth and he sees the life of Jesus and he sees the empty tomb. And all of a sudden, all of this comes together. And there is this, this uh, aha moment. You see, did John know that Jesus... Did Jesus tell John, I'm going to die and raise again? Yeah, he told him several times. So it, it does not mean he was completely unaware. It means he didn't grasp the truth. But when he grasped it, he acted on it. When I do a project in our home, I think about it for quite a while. I usually talk to a person or two. I look around. Maybe I go to the hardware store. My most recent project is taking down the old microwave range hood and putting up a new one which made i had to make a new cabinet up there and we rearranged a couple things and so i i had the microwaves the new microwave sitting on the workbench or on the table in the garage and i read the book and i looked at that thing and i looked at my wall kind of conceptualized and kind of stepped it out i'm going to have to do this first and then this and then this and, and it still always takes twice as long as you think it's going to take but you know what, when I start, 
when I start is when I take the old one down and I tear the cabinet out. And once I do that, there's no turning back. <laughs> I have to figure out a way to go forward from that point. And usually it's not exactly what I thought it was going to be. But I get it done. Friend, at some point you've got to start this journey. You have to say, I'm putting the old behind. I'm going to embrace Christ. I don't know exactly what's ahead, but I know he's there. And I know he's going to work this out. Would you bow your heads and just think about God's truth this morning as the worship team comes? I want to ask you some questions for you to think about today. I'm not going to ask you to walk forward or do anything like that. This is just for you to think about. The question, first of all, is this. Are you ready to tear out the old and start the new? The new life of faith in Christ today. If you can't clearly point to a time when you chose to believe, if you're fuzzy about your faith in Christ... Wouldn't it be great to make today the day when that fuzziness goes away? And you say, on Easter Sunday, 2010, I believed in Christ. I don't know if I did before. I might have. I might not have. It doesn't matter. But on this day, I believe. I am leaving the old behind and I'm moving into the new. And then I want to ask you another question. Have you ever made that decision public? Because Jesus says, you need to confess me before men in order for me to confess you before my Father in heaven. And that needs to come out of your mouth, and it needs to come by baptism. Heavenly Father, thank you for showing us how to become believers. Thank you for sending your Son to take away our sins. And thank you for showing us the example of people like John who walked down this journey of faith. Father, I don't know where everybody's at that's sitting in this room today. I'm sure there are some who believe and there are some who don't believe. There may be some who are actively suppressing the truth, who are fighting what you are trying to do through your Holy Spirit. Father, help them to give up that battle today. There may be some that are just getting started. May this be a great day of beginning that results in them coming to faith in Christ. Father, help us who are Christians to get a hold of this truth and to live it and to model it and to bring people to you as you change their lives. I pray in Christ's name, amen.